Hello and welcome to The Stack, a starry show indeed. Today we speak with Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. She celebrates five years at the helm of the iconic title, plus their annual Hollywood issue. And we also visit an independent magazine hub in Madrid. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking to the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, Radhika Jones. The celebrated title just published their 29th annual Hollywood issue, a mainstay for Vanity Fair. The issue is out now in the newsstands. And this year, the cover stars range from Oscar nominees Austin Butler and Anna de Armas to the darling actor of the moment, Jonathan Majors. The club before the shoot was shot by Stephen Klein. Radhika tells me more about Vanity Fair plans for 2023 and also about the new issue. Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. What a pleasure to have you here on the stack, Radhika, because my first question to you, I mean, it's five years, I believe, that you've been the editor-in-chief, and Vanity Fair, for me, is such an iconic title. Tell us, how do you feel after five years, and, and do you remember when you started your post and where you wanted to take the magazine, actually? It's, I would say, five years in it. It's been really exhilarating. There's been... I think whenever you are in the magazine business, the storytelling business to be broader about it, you benefit from times of change and disruption and unpredictability because it gives you a lot of inroads to examine the kind of the world that we live in and the culture that we live in. And the last five years obviously have been extremely eventful, unpredictable in all of the areas that we cover at Vanity Fair. We obviously cover Hollywood, and you know, you and I are going to talk a little bit about the Hollywood issue today, which is great. We cover politics, we cover tech, and in all of these worlds, there's been a lot of upheaval. There's been a lot of positive change and, and progressive change, and then there's also been a lot of scandal and threat and obviously a global pandemic and just things that we never saw coming. And so Five years ago when I took the job, you know, I had an idea of the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell and that, and I believe very deeply and still believe in the power of a title like Vanity Fair to really put people on your radar. Like our readers want to know what's next. They want to know what's exciting. They want to know what's changing. That's our job. We take it very seriously, but we also have a lot of fun doing it. So just to be able to showcase new talent, talent that's exciting, you know, actors, musicians, artists, but also to dig deeper into sort of the political and cultural issues that shape us and shape the way we live. That's been incredible. And it continues to be incredible. I mean, we're, what we're doing now is kind of using all of the momentum that we have in terms of our journalism and our photography and our storytelling to kind of broaden our scope and be able to tell those stories in a compelling way in documentaries and limited series and video and on TikTok and sort of all the places where we might find people who love Vanity Fair. So it's been very exciting. It feels great to be five years in and feel like, okay, we have a roadmap. We know what our readers love. We know how we love to guide them and challenge them too. And that's fun. And, you know, we're here to kind of inform and entertain, but also hopefully to be a leader in the culture and to lead the conversation. 
And Radik, of course, one thing I've noticed in the last five years as well, I mean, the digital presence of Vanity Fair, for me, keeps on growing. I've seen mm-hmm. more and more of that, which is fantastic. And and it's quite interesting you mentioned that there's the Vanity Fair studios, which mm-hmm. I would love to find out more about it. But tell us about the importance of the printed edition, because I have in my hands the Hollywood issue, which is an issue which I very much look forward to see every year especially because I find it quite different year on year, mm-hmm. the vibe, you mm-hmm. know, I think last year was quite yeah. technocolor. This this year is a bit more kind of decadent, it's a bit clubby, which I, I also enjoyed very much. Tell us about the printed edition and its remaining importance in a world that's becoming more digital, but there's some lovers for print as well. No, totally. I, I firmly believe that we can have both. We can have all of it. And that's a great thing. That's a gift. It's wonderful to work at a magazine that still has a print presence because there is something very satisfying about working toward a deadline. You know, the internet is vast and allows for much freedom and allows for very specific timing and a lot of range of voice and genre. A print magazine has more limitations. You have to work within the boundaries of the page. You have to work within a deadline. The printer can't just print anytime you're ready. You know, you come together as a team And you have to think about how to best use your imagery and your text and everything in that format. And what we find is that it kind of focuses us, you know, a a print cover, it appears in print, we have it in front of us, but it also obviously has a huge digital life. So I feel almost like the print can be the kernel of an issue or of a topic or something that we're we're examining but it also has an incredible life beyond the print platform and so it can be a gateway for people you know that that you can catch a glimpse of something when you're traveling you're at an airport you see the cover of a magazine you're like oh what is this and the color pops out or the you know the expression of the person who's been photographed or whatever it is and it takes you into that world and print works the same way digitally. You know, when we post a cover on Instagram, we're sort of getting that feedback in real time. And so print is very much part of our portfolio, but to me, it's an opportunity rather than a limitation because it just, it focuses us. It gives us kind of, in the case of the Hollywood issue, year over year, as you're saying, you know, it gives us an opportunity to kind of keep reinventing something so that we we have readers who have collected it for decades and we know we want to encourage that kind of loyalty, but we also know that they like to be surprised and they look forward to that issue every year. And so it's a fun challenge for us to figure out, okay, what are we going to do this year that's going to feel fresh and modern and different? And one of the things I love about this year's Hollywood issue is that we decided to showcase a younger generation of talent. And they were all I mean, they're incredibly accomplished actors, and it it was amazing to kind of put this group together and realize how much they already have accomplished and how much they have yet still in front of them. But also what was fun for us was that none of them had ever been on our Hollywood cover before. So it was truly a group of sort of debut presence for this cast of actors. And my hope is that, you know, years from now, we will look back at this cover and think, oh, yeah, like these were the stars of the moment, but also the stars of tomorrow. 
and they have so much charisma and so much presence. And so it was really fun to kind of think about capturing this moment and also projecting ahead a little bit. I agree with you. I think the selection this year I mean, has been incredible because those are incredible actors and actresses. And one question I have, it must be actually quite hard actually doing the cover for the Hollywood issue because, I mean, there's so many and they're big names and they're busy, you know, they're doing films, TV. I mean, what are the logistics behind it? I mean, do you have yeah. to start planning six months before or more? We perhaps? do. We do. We plan even even longer before. Wow. In fact, I mean, we joke about it, but it's kind of true that as soon as we put this cover to bed, we're already thinking about what can we do next year? You know, what can we how can we build on it? So that conceptually, we're sort of always thinking about it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it is. To me, it's part of the reward of doing it. It's kind of like, yeah, we everybody makes the effort. We make the effort to kind of create the shoot and the environment and the concept and bring everybody together. And all of these incredibly busy and talented people make the effort to come to the shoot and take part in it and see some of their see some of their peers in the industry. And it's really it's a it's a special thing. It's part of the reason that we come back to that group cover is because there's a kind of chemistry that happens in person, you know, and it's, by the way, something that we we kind of had to do without during COVID because you couldn't obviously have a group photo shoot with not only tons of actors, but also uh, the photography crew and, you know, everybody on the fashion team and sort of everybody who you need to make a shoot like that happen. So it was really lovely this year to be able to come back to kind of that traditional mode of photographing. And Stephen Klein, who photographed it and his team did a fantastic job. Patty Wilson styled it and just knocked it out of the park. Everybody looks so, I mean, you're right. The vibe we were going for was sort of clubby, like the coolest after party you can imagine. Because now we can dance, right, with everyone. Now yeah. it's kind of finally. And, <laughs> and it's it's so it's so fun. I, I love looking at this group. I mean, I, I, I know we're just on audio, but I have it behind me in my office because it's so inspiring. Everybody kind of looks great together, but they also look like themselves individually. And that's part of the genius of Patty. So it's, it's a really special thing to be able to do. And, you know, not a lot of magazines do it anymore, to be honest, like that, that kind of really ambitious photo shoot. So we want to keep that up. No, I, I, I like that level of ambition. And one of my favorite things of Vanity Fair as well is the kind of the in-depth article. So for example, in this issue, besides the amazing photo shoot by Stephen Klein, I mean, I love to find out more about Gloria Swanson as well. I mean, and that's the classic Vanity Fair article that you guys do so well. Tell us about the importance about the re reporting as well, because you have the amazing covers as well. But if, but sometimes those stories, they're fantastic. Well, especially uh, that profile that I mentioned. I'm so glad that you responded to that. That one's very special because it was written by a longtime Vanity Fair editor who's now in his 90s and really has been holding oh. on to the story for a long time. And And the time was finally right for him to put it out into the world. And we were very honored to publish it. And yeah, it's a classic BF story. It's about a movie star and kind of a little controversy about her memoir and, you know, love affairs and drama and egos and all of it. You know, we firmly believe in the classic Vanity Fair formula that people who read VF, you know, they're curious and they're intelligent and they want to be immersed in stories. And, you know, we have a lot of permission to play in various spaces. We cover politics and we do that with a lot of attitude, but we also, we're able to cover stories of intrigue and scandal. And I think that taking the time and space to report out those kinds of stories and also to publish them at 
length and let people really sit back and be immersed in them. To me, it's it's a core function of the magazine. And I think fewer and fewer magazines do it, which makes it more and more important to us to stick with it. We really believe in that kind of storytelling. And what we find now is that it's, I mean, not only is it great for our readers, but they're great stories in print, but they also are stories that really pull people in digitally. So they work on multiple platforms and they really are, I think, synonymous with the identity of Vanity Fair. And also we mentioned briefly VF Studios, you know, these are the stories that we can envision making into films or series. And so to be able to have that kind of basis for something that will turn into, say, an eight-episode podcast or a non-scripted series on HBO or whatever it might be. It's exciting for us to be able to follow those stories through now. It's So it's not just like we put them out in the world and that's done. We have this sort of ongoing relationship with our reporting, and that is a really exciting place to be. And it's something that I think our current media environment, as changed as it is from the old days of magazine making in like the 80s and 90s, to me, it just, it gives us so much more opportunity. There's a kind of advantage, you know, we can take a story and we can manifest it in half a dozen different ways. And people are going to find it in all those different ways. And that's exciting too. That's extremely exciting. And and also it's Oscar season, uh, mm-hmm. 12th of March. I mean, for Vanity Fair, it's also must be a very special kind of month because of the party as well. I mean, everybody talks about the party. Are you excited, first of all? Because, I mean, we all wanted to attend a Vanity Fair party <laughs> ever, right? Uh, tell us how important it is for the brand, the Oscars in general, and, and the party too. I'm very excited to answer your first question. <laughs> what are you um, we wearing? We love the party. The party's really fun. I can't tell you what I'm wearing. It's a, it's a state secret, but I'm very excited. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's a place where people connect and reconnect. And in that sense, it's kind of, I don't want to be too uh, cerebral about it, but it's, a, it's sort of a metaphor for the magazine. It's like people come together and they enjoy each other and it's a party and it feels sort of like in the same way that we sort of represented that spirit in this Hollywood issue, you know, that's part of the spirit of the magazine. It's a place where people, actors, directors, everybody who's been on the festival, film festival circuit all year, they've been campaigning for awards or supporting their cast members and supporting their films. Once the Oscars happen, that long road is finished and they can let their hair down and relax and enjoy themselves and have fun and celebrate. And it's so wonderful to watch people come into that party holding an Oscar, holding maybe the first Oscar they've ever won, holding the evidence that they did great work and that it meant something to a lot of people. There's nothing like it. For many people who come to that party, it's the pinnacle of their career. It's a great, great night in their lives. And we get to share that and we get to showcase it. And that is, it's truly, it's a privilege. I mean, I enjoy myself. I have a wonderful time. And afterwards I'm always like, oh, I wish it lasted twice as long because there are so many people to see and so many people to chat with and connect with. And especially after all this time of COVID, it's like we've sort of taken baby steps back in and this year feels very celebratory. But I think it has this, you know, it's a special night for a lot of people and we get to be a part of that. I mean, we have some even nominees here, uh, you know, Anna de Armas, for example, mm-hmm. Austin Butler, and Austin Butler, of yeah. course, which yeah. I mean, potential winners all for Best Actor, yeah. I think. Yeah. And to think how early they are in their careers, yes. and that it, you know, this this is only the beginning for them. I mean, it's really exciting. Radhika, it's a very random question that I might ask, but who in your mind is the, the Vanity Fair uh, reader as well? Because the magazine is quite unique in that sense, because it does cover 
the fashion, the glitz, the Hollywood, but as I said, he also has a more literary side as well. Mm -hmm. Clearly someone that is interested in the world uh, yes. we live in, for sure. But is, is that what you imagine? Do you have any divisions? Is a man, women, a bit older, younger? You know, it's it's demographically, I think it's it's one of the rare magazines that truly is mixed in terms of men and women, our readership. I truly think it's exactly what you said. It's people who are intelligent, curious about the world, and also people who, um, and I count myself among them, understand that you don't have to box yourself in. You know, if, you, if you're interested in fashion, it doesn't mean that you're not also interested in politics. And in fact, some of our stories that kind of make the most impact happen at the intersection of those places. You know, I mean, certainly when you're writing about Hollywood these days, there's a lot of tech, there's a lot of politics involved in, in show business and in culture. And politics is theater in its own way. So we sort of lean into those overlaps and those connections. And we trust that our readers also are enriched by that, that, you know, we all understand that in the world that we live in, you know, you can't really draw lines between those topics. They overlap productively. And we think it's kind of fun to push those boundaries away. And finally, Radhika, I just want to know about your kind of vision for 2023. Are you optimistic? Because here in the UK, and I'm sure it might be similar to the United States, I mean, distribution remains a bit difficult for magazines because, you know, price rises, among other things. Do you have a strategy? I, I know that in the U.S. subscriptions are quite a big thing as well, mm -hmm. much more uh, than newsstand sales. Tell us about your vision. Do we have reasons to be optimistic and perhaps focusing more on Vanity Fair as well? I do feel optimistic about it. I mean, I've been working in media for about 25 years, so I've witnessed a lot of change. And I, th I think that we have to expect it, those of us who are professionals in the industry, and we have to be nimble and we have to, you know, we have to always be thinking about that very core proposition of, okay, we have this great product. We have Vanity Fair. We have terrific stories. They are unique. We support them. We support reporting with fact-checking and copy editing. And, you know, we're putting out content at a very high production value. And part of our strategy is knowing that people will value it in turn. And that, you know, that's what underlies the kind of drive for toward subscriptions is in a world where a lot of media has become very commoditized, this sense of like, oh, well, I can get this anywhere. What we're offering at Vanity Fair is not something that you can get anywhere. You can't get this cover photo anywhere of this young talent in Hollywood. You can't get our journalism anywhere because it's unique to us. The voice is unique. The reporting is unique. And so we think a lot about in every platform in terms of our strategy, you know, whether we're looking at driving subscriptions and sort of cultivating loyalty in readers, or we're looking at creating documentaries and bringing people into the Vanity Fair community in that way, or commercial endeavors, things like that. It's always that core question of this is Vanity Fair. It's a special property. We want to bring people into that community and we want to be really creative and nimble about how we do it. But I think that what makes me optimistic is that we have so there are so many pathways for us to do that. You know, we've had, for example, just in the last year, we've had incredible growth in our TikTok channel. That demographic, that's a whole rising generation of people who now know Vanity Fair who might not have. And they know it through TikTok, but now that they're aware, they're going to find it in other ways. So we're, you know, we're always trying to sort of bring people under that tent. Thank you very much, Radhika. What a pleasure. Vanity Fair's Hollywood issue is out now. It's a thing of beauty. Music 
As well as stocking international titles, the bookstore hosts exhibitions to celebrate the printed page. To live through their collections and gather a few choice magazine recommendations, Monaco's Maylie Evans headed to the Spanish capital. Okay, maybe we have... Okay, I can recommend you this. Because it's, it's local. This is a magazine which is called Este es un cuerpo. Uh, this is a body, that's the translation. Every issue is dedicated to one piece of our body. So we have this issue on her and also on hands. And we had uh, the eyes before. And it's made by a very young group of women publishers. And it's mainly photography, but also poetry. Every issue is dedicated to a different part of the body. <laughs> I am Asia Roa. I work as an architecture photographer and I am the co-founder of the bookstore Paperground, which is based in Madrid. And I share it with my colleague Margarita Vicentini. Mainly we are working on books about photography, architecture, uh, design, art, and also nature. We began with just a little few titles and we realized that people were very interested in this kind of books. And we are also working on international independent magazines. Margarita and I, we met because we were sharing a co-working uh, here in Madrid for many years. And in the last seven years, we have also been working on publishing our own books. She was publishing her own magazine on creativity and I was publishing some books on architecture. About one year and a half ago, we decided that maybe we could rent a place in the street in Madrid and continue sharing our workplace, but also having a place where we could sell our own books and magazines, but also other projects which were very similar to ours. It's really important that there are spaces like this where you can visit in person, you get to see the titles, get to touch them. Mm. What is the ecosystem? Are there many places like this in Madrid? How does this space fit into that? Here in Madrid in the last maybe 10 years, we have seen a growing uh, a scene on uh, self-publishing. So uh, when we decided to open this, this place, we, we thought that uh, there was already a scene created for this kind of place. But uh, the things we thought was that everything was ephemeral. There were fairs on self-publishing, but there was not a permanent physical space. For us, this was like the way to get all these people that were interested in this kind of books and to be in the, near in the streets. This is a magazine about a collective here in Madrid. The magazine is called uh, La Pose del Garnica, which could be translated like the Garnica Pose. And it's uh, a magazine mainly on theory of design. These are very young people. They are self-publishing their own magazine. For example, in this issue, they are interviewing to design students about what they think about the future. They came. In fact, uh, he has been here, one of them, today because he's an investigator on books on the 16th century. <laughs> so he's been here today because uh, next month we're going to make an event with him on a, on a book published by uh, the artist Warhol Abater about the Guillermo Tell book. 
you were mentioning earlier as you were showing me around the shop, this kind of growing interest in gardening happening yeah. in Spain. Tell me a little bit about that and where that's come from. Well, my colleague and Margarita and I, I think we both like gardening. So the first books, we just brought them just because we like them. We have seen how people have been asking us for different titles about gardening, but also about plants, about botanic. We think the people are very aware of climate change. We're also selling magazines which talk a lot about climate change, which are also very successful here. This is my impression that people are on the need of having a closer relationship with nature. And maybe here in the city is very difficult. So maybe with a book, you can have that contact also, no? And do you host events here or how else is this space used other than being this bookstore as it is during the day? We are celebrating every month one exhibition dedicated on the production and uh, ideation or making books. In the last year, we had six exhibitions and dedicated one to a photographer, another to an, a publishing house, or very small, and then a printer and also an architecture magazine. Are selling the self-publishing. They come themselves and they show us here in the shop, but also by email. And then we have like a very, I think, organic selection because they are all things that we know or that we like or that we are interested in. So everything we have, it's quite near to us. As we are uh, publishers also, we have many publisher colleagues. <laughs> so we are very aware and we are in contact with them very often. We also have this book that we brought from an Asian film festival, which is hosted here in Madrid. Uh, they published it for this festival. And it's a, a book about the Taiwanese film director Chai Ming Liang. And it's designed by the graphic designer Diego Lara. This is a book made on risography. This book is made on film stills from his movies, and it's made on risography. The risography is a printed uh, technique, which uh, in the aesthetic is like uh, only uh, two colors, which is white and then the other, the ink color. This is also my personal opinion. <laughs> uh, and also because I am a photographer, but uh, I think that uh, in the last year, uh, there have been here a lot of uh, self-publishing on photography. There have been a lot of photographers who have been developing uh, photo books. And also they have emerged some uh, small publishers on photography. So maybe if we are talking about local, for me in Madrid in these years, we can talk about a very interesting scene on photo books. This is a, a magazine uh, made by the artist and publisher Anouk Becker. Uh, <laughs> and well, it's about aprons. <laughs> uh, she contacted us from uh, Netherlands and by email and she sent us this project which is a magazine about aprons and the magazine itself is a wearable apron because it's made from a special paper which is uh, 
waterproof uh, paper and also it has some ribbons so that you can fasten it uh, to your waist so you can really actually use it as an apron. It's super well produced because when she contacted us, she only sent us some pictures. So sometimes in pictures you can't really know how the things are made. And when it arrived, I think the production is incredible. It's super difficult to have this idea, but also uh, the kind of production, it's super well done, I think. I appreciate these kind of things. <laughs> Is it projects like this that you're able to show them to other people who, who would never come across this, you know, otherwise and share someone's work that you find exciting? Yeah, uh, well, sometimes, uh, of course, people are, are asking us about their projects and, well, we dedicate sometimes many time to explain because sometimes you don't, you don't know the whole story behind a magazine or a book. So here we are to tell people what's behind because... Authors and publishers are in contact with us, so it's super nice telling people about what's behind the scenes. <laughs> Thank you very much there to Aysir Arua, co-founder of Paper Ground, in conversation with Monaco's Maylee Evans. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you. Madonna, Hollywood. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me.